Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is a Q&A episode. It's something that we do about once a year. I think it was last year we did it. With me today are my sons, Camden and Brett. They are partners at Money for the Rest of Us, have been for yes, almost a year and a half now. They'll read some of the questions, they'll chime in, but we're going to start off with some more investing-related questions, and then a little later have some more let's say, philosophical-related question. So, Camden, why don't you go ahead and get started? Sure. So, our first question says, Hi, David and team. Can you please explain how your investment approach differs, if it does, from active management or market timing versus a passive buy and hold strategy? I'm unclear on this distinction, and I get the impression from your work that you generally believe that investors cannot beat the market with any consistency. Yet, you pursue strategies, such as portfolio tilting, to do just that. What am I missing in the seeming contradiction? If you have previously explained this distinction in some other forum, just direct me to the content uh, and that would be fine. The seeming contradiction is what do we mean by the market? The question refers to beating the market. And, and financial theory at the root of passive buy and hold investing is something known as the market portfolio. And this is a theoretical bundle of investments that includes every asset available in the financial markets, it includes stocks bonds, preferred stock, equity REITs, public and private assets, potentially. And so that's the theory. And the idea is that if you're a passive investor, you own this market portfolio in the proportional weights based on size. But we can't observe the market portfolio. And, and that leaves us to figuring out what should our asset allocation be. Now, data confirms that most active stock managers lag comparable index funds. And that's why I primarily invest in stocks via index funds or ETFs. But how do we decide what other asset classes to include in our portfolio besides stocks? And, and what should be included? And what are those weights? What do we do about equity strategies such as momentum and value that historically have outperformed a size-weighted portfolio? And so that leaves us with our approach of money for the rest of us, which comes out of my how I invested professionally, is broad diversification using a variety of asset types, understanding the portfolio drivers of those returns, the cash flow, the cash flow growth, what investors are paying for those cash flows, and, and look at that data and then make an allocation decision. Few investors are truly passive because they need to decide what assets to hold what the weight should be, and how to rebalance. And so what we do at Money for the Rest of Us is help with that decision, come up with expected returns, provide tools such as Asset Camp to help investors do that. And investing means making changes. Even investors that believe they're totally passive have to rebalance. Now, we can distinguish that from market timing, which is 
much more active and much more aggressive in many regards. And it can work, just doesn't fit my temperament. The portfolio churn rate can be much higher and it can be exhausting and and potentially tax inefficient. And so our approach is less active. It's more of a wait and see and to see what flows in with the tide. We've spent a lot of time in the last month or so on the podcast and on Plus Membership talking about treasury inflation protection securities because there was an opportunity that we hadn't seen in decades. It was a prudent decision to make an additional allocation there. Equity REITs got as cheap as they've, they've been in five years, which means their expected return was higher. It made sense to make an allocation there like I did in my portfolio. And so we are allowed to make allocation decisions. Even if you're a buy and hold investor, we make decisions and it's just sort of a broad range in terms of how active investors are. But very few investors that I know, unless they're 100% stocks and never make a change, are truly buy and hold investors. All right. Our next question is, you've been an investment professional for a long time. What are two or three things you've changed your mind on in the last 10 years, in the last two years? So I left the investment industry, you know, as a money manager in 20, the beginning of 2012. And we were actively managing portfolios since, I guess, 2003 is when we launched the Basically, we got discretion to make portfolio changes for our clients, what we called active asset allocation, which is really the impetus for how I've always managed money, like I just discussed. And the focus there was on, on valuations. Uh, we looked at sentiment, you know, are there bubbles, momentum, and, and we would make allocation decisions, asset allocation decisions. Spent less time on economic trends. We were aware of it. But really coming out of that 2009, the financial crisis was so startling in its severity of losses, and very few people saw it. And so I sort of went on a path of how, what do we miss? And and how does this whole macro thing work? And that's when I was first introduced to modern monetary theory, accounting identities, how government deficits, federal deficits provide cash to the private sector to spend, how money is created and debt dynamics and and all the things that we talk about on money for the rest of us, public versus private money. But a lot of it was theory up until the, the pandemic, where we saw how powerful central banks were by running huge quantitative easing programs combined with a federal budget deficit. And what did we see? We saw the money supply increase 40%. We saw a huge jump in net worth and a jump in liquidity, the money supply. And that pushed up prices significantly. And it, it basically wiped out a lot of the financial stress from the pandemic and set the stock market roaring. And two years later, inflation at the highest level in 30 years. And so what did I learn from that? The power of central banks that how we've invested before, you you just have to recognize that central banks will do whatever they can to reduce the pain in the economy. And that leads us to have greater humility as investors, fewer changes, and the focus on what we control. What we can control is the compounding of our assets, and we can control how much cash we're receiving in the form of dividends and interest. And we can control what we're paying for those assets and make adjustments when it's really obvious that this is an opportunity. And those opportunities come less than they used to because of central banks. 
I would say that's it. It's central banks. We've seen a textbook case uh, of what causes inflation. Huge jump in the money supply combined with supply constraints and the capacity to produce goods and services. Our next question is, if you were to make a list of some ways to fail with money, spending money on things you cannot afford yet might be one of them. However, what this strategy can result in is an elevated social status, which can definitely lead to other life benefits. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on social status as a consideration when spending slash investing one's money. I have had a lifelong fascination with status, starting with probably much younger. I grew up in, we could call it a lower middle class household, probably barely hanging on to that level of status. But I recall in, in, as a sophomore in high school, reading the book Babbitt by Sinclair Lewis, and it was all about status and, and wrote a research report on status and how status fits in with culture. And recently, I, I or this year, I finished a book by W. David Marks called Status and Culture. And, and one of his conclusions is empirical research shows we all, as a fundamental human desire, crave status. And much of it, and this was probably what was most alarming about the book, a lot of it's subconscious. We justify it. We'll purchase things not because we think... Uh, it'll increase my status, but we'll th- think, well, it's because it's beautiful or there's some other, you know, it's a great value or I just I just happen to like it. But underneath that, it's often kind of this desire for status. And I don't I'd be interested in Camden and Brett. Do you make status purchases? I mean, I think the answer, like you said, is is yes and no. I think I, I have a tendency to try to consciously, you know, avoid making status purchases, but I can definitely tell that, you know, they're around. For example, in the last year, you know, I bought a pair of AirPods. You know, I was doing a bunch of research on different wireless Bluetooth headphones to use while I'm out running. I have an iPhone, so AirPods made sense. But as I researched and I became more aware of it, one of the things that I you start paying attention to is what what types of headphones do people have? And a lot of people have complained that Apple only makes AirPods in white. And they say, well, why don't they make them in other colors? And one of the things I noticed is I very quickly started noticing when other people had white headphones and then checking if they were AirPods or not. And I realized that there was a subconscious element of this is kind of a status thing, is I have the real deal. Which embarrassed me a little bit to realize that there was a subconscious level of that. I was really just trying to find, you know, the best kind of headphone for my need. But I realized that, you know, that was a branding and status decision by Apple. That a lot of those design elements that they have are are status things. And so I don't think I find myself actively trying to buy status in that sense. But I think it is pretty common for us to, and I think maybe fairly common for me to recognize that some of my decisions I might classify more as identity decisions. I'm the kind of person that likes this, I think, which is a type of status or, or you know, when we try to, you know, we try to avoid things like virtue signaling. But if you are saying, I'm going to buy something like this, because I believe that is the more eco-conscious thing to do, or that's the more economical thing to do. And occasionally, you know, that's something that I do because I want a company to notice, or I want society to notice. And that's a part of status as well. As far as you know, the social benefits, I don't think I consider that as much. But when I was thinking about this question earlier, one of the things that came to mind to me is I think that there there can be benefits, but it's so hard 
to measure. It's chasing status in other people's eyes just because we, we just can't see. This is just my opinion. But since we can't know exactly what they're thinking, it just doesn't seem like a, a good use of time. And to me, it I came back to the the principle in the you know in the money for the rest of us book is it investing speculating or gambling and spending money specifically to elevate social status especially money that you don't have or on things you can't afford yet is a speculation at best there's no guaranteed positive return on that and I would say that more often than not it probably is a gamble and so I think in my mind, that specific scenario seems like one to avoid. But I do think that we, and I know that I subconsciously and occasionally consciously do make purchases where status is an element. Uh, it turns out back on the AirPods that the, the cool kids apparently are back to using Apple wired pods. <laughs> I've I mean, heard they this. actually have the wired. So Brad, any thoughts? I have two thoughts about this. One would be going back to that Uh, spending money on things you can't afford yet. My wife went and got a master's degree in occupational therapy, and we definitely could not afford the $40,000 a year in tuition uh, for the two years. And that's something that has definitely, I, I don't know if I would say like our social status has necessarily improved. It's definitely allowed us to earn a much higher income or for her to earn a much higher income. And while we are still paying that off, it has definitely benefited us, which now is, I think now having worked so much with money for the rest of us is just the benefits of an extremely leveraged investment and seeing those payoffs. As far as raising social status, I don't think I really make purchases to affect this, but I do feel that pressure in outdoor clothing. So I do a lot of outdoor activities, rock climbing, hiking, snowboarding, and I will often feel pressure to, to not, I already have a lot of imposter syndrome with that. And so there are some times where I'm like, do I look like I fit in here? And I, I don't think I make purchases about that, but I, it certainly is on my mind. I remember when I was 21, I had a very ridiculous looking mustache and I was hiking with a friend and he told me, he says, I really like hiking with you. It makes me look like I fit in because as having a ridiculous mustache at 20 made me look like I fit in on the trailer. I, I used to hike a lot with these uh, hiking sandals called Chacos. And it was a status thing if you had these like very tan feet with your, your Chaco lines on them. And I, I can't wear Chacos anymore because of a foot injury. And it sometimes I'm like, man, I don't, I don't fit in. And, and so I, that is something I deal with, but I try to not, I recognize it coming at me and then try not to make those decisions. But it definitely, I feel the pressure because I don't want people you know, judging me, just sad, but it's the way it is, I suppose. Well, and that's why we make fun of your pale feet on family hikes. <laughs> the, the reality is, though, we do feel pressure. And there are sort of table stakes or unwritten rules to kind of join a group, which can take some speculative spending to see if we can at least get to the level where we, we can participate and then be rewarded based on our merit. But the reality is status is here. We all do it subconsciously. We need to be aware of it and try to be strategic in our use of status-seeking purchases. Brett, let's go on to our next question. This listener asks, I have some investments in Fundrise, a company you suggested is a good option for real estate participation. I agree that they are great. 
The CEO in Fundrise in repeated podcasts has asserted that we are headed for a deep, deep recession and feels optimism is misguided. He's not being alarmist, just factual. He's also not promoting anything by making this statement, just giving his view. It seems to me your view is more moderate. We're headed for hopefully a soft or softish landing with some but not dramatic input. I would appreciate more feedback and input from you on this topic. I'm not sure what facts he's looking at. So we look at economic indicators, corporate profits, interest rates, and and all these things on a monthly basis as part of our monthly investment conditions and strategy report. And deep, deep recessions come generally when there are some type of excesses in the system, excess debt, which leads to really some type of balance sheet recession. And when you look at where things are, households and businesses are still in decent shape, again, thanks to the the central banks and huge budget deficits, which continue. When we look at leading economic indicators, such as PMI data, the most recent composite PMI, which includes manufacturing and services is at 50.4. It's actually PMI data improved this month. The job report this month for the U.S. was decent. So I don't see the huge excesses that would lead to a significant recession. Now, it takes a while for interest rates, the higher the higher policy rate to take hold, but we'll see. But I, you know, at this point, I'm having a hard time finding it. So I'll have to check out what Fundrise has said because, you know, when we look at in some of our research partners, they they don't see it either. But we're always looking for where we're wrong. But, you know, based on in a number of decades of looking at this, I, I just I don't see what would cause a very, very deep recession. Next question. What is the worst investment move you made this year and why? Been a pretty good year, I, I suspect for most of us with with the markets. The worst investment was not realizing that one of the mutual funds that I hold, the Double Line Real Estate and Income Fund, DBRX, was closing. They, this is a, an equity REIT fund in October, and we mentioned this in our monthly investment conditions report, that equity REITs were the cheapest they'd been really since, you know, briefly in 2020, but way back in 2018, just looking at the dividend yield was 4.6%. In fact, that was the highest since 2009, except for a couple of weeks in March 2020. And so I allocated more to equity REITs in October using the Vanguard Real Estate ETF, VNQ. And then I was preparing for our investment conditions report this month and noticed I couldn't find the double line fund anymore. And turns out it had got liquidated, closed. And they sent the money in in early November. So basically, they perfectly timed the equity REIT bottom because equity REITs are up over 12% in the month of November. And so I, I basically lost all that appreciation, not being aware that Double Line was closing the fund. In fact, it annoyed me so much that I tweeted it to uh, the powers to be a double line and then decided that was petty and took the tweet down after 10 minutes. But you have to be aware of what's in your portfolio and, and I guess notifications from fund companies. Because I, if I had known, I would have rolled it over into, you know, put more in equity REITs in VNQ or some other, some other option, but I didn't. So now I sort of lost that big rebound in equity REITs and that's a little frustrating. Well, how about you guys? I think my worst investment this year was just sitting on cash for too long and still sitting on cash for too long. My spouse and I were saving up for a car and 
I should have had that invested in some sort of cash equivalent and just didn't get around to it and even didn't fund my IRA as soon as I could have. And so just lost out through inflation and not getting some of the gains that came throughout the year. So my mistake was not acting. Honestly, mine is probably pretty similar. Uh, my investment portfolio is pretty straightforward, though I think that we could also talk about just different leveraging different retirement accounts. Um, so for me, it's still getting, you know, making sure that we're getting all of the, uh, the systems in place to make sure that we're consistently getting the investments in where we want them and, and the savings in where we want them as well. So we've got to be on top of it. That's true. <laughs> when you talk about cash balances every time we open up our business checking account and see, yeah, we're earning point whatever, oh, 0.01% on our cash and realize, oh, we could earn more, but we have to go open up another account somewhere outside of our a corporate bank. And so, um, yeah, it just, it's just sort of how valuable, is, how valuable is your time or just the frustration. And it's probably not as valuable as the amount of uh, money we lost this year keeping you know, our corporate cash in a very, very low-yielding checking account. All right, our next question says, since the stock market is driven by institutional investors and returns have been concentrated in the top seven stocks, what valuation metrics are they using to justify the price? Nobody using any valuation method seems to think the prices make any sense. What explains the disconnect? There are all types of ways to invest, but you know, at its core, an active manager will hold a very expensive stock because they believe that their earnings and revenue growth will be better than expected. So that would be one reason. They can justify the price because they believe that the, those companies will, and maybe it's, it's several years out, will do much better than what's priced into the stock. I mean, that would be the only reason to do it. Well, that would be one reason to do it. The other would be based on sheer price momentum, where the investor believes that other investors will come in and bid up the price even further and that the, the original investor will, will hopefully get out in time. That's really... Any price can be justified. And I think Tesla is a great example. We've seen Tesla get incredibly expensive over the years. And there was some viable disagreement on what the right price is. But there were some that argued it was super, super cheap, even when it was very, very expensive on various valuation metrics. So they justify it because they think the company will do better than expected that's priced into the stock, or it's just momentum, and they believe that the momentum will keep going up and they'll be able to get out before there's some type of momentum crash. Our next question is, what, if anything, have you learned from Charlie Munger? What I've learned is, and I, if you've listened to the podcast, I, I have not done very many episodes at all on Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. I think we've done one. But what I really respect about them Certainly, they're incredibly good investors, but they're doing what they love. And Charlie Munger did what he loved, showing that you don't need to retire. If you really enjoy what you're doing, maybe you make some changes, figure out different aspects of it, but you don't have to quit. I have a good friend whose primary care physician just passed away at age 76. And this friend has had this same doctor for 40 years. And he asked his doctor, like, why don't you retire? You're in your 70s. And the doctor was like, because this is what I, I love to do. And so the whole point of living like we're already retired is to structure a life that we don't want to retire from. And, and Charlie Munger and, and Warren Buffett are great examples of that. 
In your recent Die With Zero podcast episode, you talked about different times in your life that you homeschooled and even commuted for school. I realize it's a bit personal, but as a young parent, I'd love to listen to an episode where you reflect on schooling, parenting, and maybe most importantly, choosing locations to move or choosing to be flexible. I know you've moved a ton over the years, and it would be great to hear about it, what worked, and what you'd recommend, etc. Our approach to education, and I'll definitely let you guys jump in, was is to focus on what was best for, you know, we have three children, all of which are involved in our, our family business here, but do what's best for them. We've gone, we've done public school, we've done private schools, we've done homeschooling and back and forth, including commuting from Eastern Idaho to Sun Valley and being in Sun Valley during the week and coming back on the weekends. And, and that was what worked. I think we tried to, we didn't move a lot when we were raising our kids. And, and partly I think LaPrell was always willing to move. I wasn't. I did not. We almost moved once when I was growing up, but I basically stayed in the same neighborhood my entire growing up years. And it was the same neighborhood down the street from where my dad grew up. And so the thought of changing schools terrified me. And so I was always very hesitant to, to move our kids because I valued being in place so much. And where LaPrell had moved all the time. <laughs> and it was sort of a point of contention. So when we moved from Ohio to, to Idaho, I sort of told our kids that we, this is it. Like, this is our move. We're moving here. And we generally stuck to it. We, we switched, you know, to one house once. But now that they're grown, we've basically moved a lot, trying to figure out where do we want to live? How do we want to live? And LaPrell likes to redo houses. Oh, well, we both do. And, and that has led to all types of housing projects. But ultimately, we, you know, we're flexible when it comes to moving. And I, and I did tell LaPrell that when, when our kids were growing, we live wherever you want. And, and we've generally done that. We've made the decision together, but been willing to move. So what about you guys? What, any thoughts? I think thinking it over your statement when you said that you always tried to do what was best for us is something that I always felt. While maybe, you know, when I was younger, moving to Idaho from Ohio was not my favorite thing. I can look back and, you know, see the benefits of, of what happened. But you were always incredibly patient when we were taking kind of our education journey. I never felt pressured into things. And I got a lot of leeway, which I think is is pretty interesting. There's definitely a lot of people I've talked to that are like, wow, your your parents were really relaxed when it came to that. You were very involved, but they were like, you're kind of, kind of thought you were crazy sometimes, you know, I'm like, I'm trying homeschool this, you know, this semester. And that didn't work as well for me. Uh, so, you know, going back to some of the private school, but just even I remember in high school being really interested in, in going abroad and mom being like, you should go abroad. You should try You should look into a study abroad. They have high school study abroad programs. And she'd send me them. She'd be like, you should look at this one. And I always felt very encouraged to do what was going to help me most or kind of what I was interested in. And I, and I recognize that that is, was a very special circumstance, right? Not everybody has that opportunity to, you know, be as flexible to give those opportunities to their children. And so I was, I was really, I'm really grateful for that. But I think that the, the attitude, the willingness to, to the extent that you are able, and I think that that's what I think makes the difference is to the extent that you are able to, to be able to listen. Um, you still, you know, used your greater years of experience to ultimately help make the decision that you thought was best, but to listen to what we needed or what issues we were having in school and to spend time talking through that and to brainstorm ideas for what would be the most effective within 
the means that we had, I think is something that I look back on as, as having been really important. And the fact that you don't feel betrayed by the fact that none of your children technically graduated high school, that we all managed to find alternative routes into, you know, whether it was getting a GED or in my case, I didn't get anything and managed to sort of backdoor apply our way into different community colleges, universities, and have all ended up with degrees, I think speaks to a level of mental flexibility and support that was very appreciated. But I think that that big thing I look back on that I think would, is useful for everybody is just listening. Um, you know, we all have different means, we all have different ability to act um, and to make certain decisions. Not all of us have the same privileges in life, but listening makes a huge difference in really trying to understand. I'd agree with many of the things that Camden said, and, and I switched schools a little bit more than Camden did. And even as a teenager, I recognized the reason why was that our parents were trying to facilitate us with what was working, what we needed at that time. I went to like seven different schools until I graduated. And I actually, uh, after my sophomore year, I earned my GED and went to college. And then even did that for one semester and was like, I don't think I'm ready for this or I don't know what I want to do. And, and my parents even supported me and stop and go into college at the time. And so it was whatever best suited us at the time. And I can really look back now and as an adult, see how each of those schools affected me in positive and negative ways and have really helped me become the person I am today. I think some of the things I really value about that was seeing different education styles and even different belief systems. You know, I, I went to one school that was the headmaster was was very conservative. And it was I, I look back at some of the things that he taught us and it was and being able to see that from that point of view was really interesting. And then my last year of high school, I was at a liberal arts school that was so radically different than that previous school I had been to. And really being able to see both sort of perspectives on education and the world and, and even just political and social viewpoints, I think was really valuable to me and has something that has really affected me in my life since then. I, I will admit, I definitely was on team not moving again. I know there were several times my mom wanted to move and I was over here like, please, I don't want to move. And I, I do feel sort of bad about that because I know she really wanted to move. I am very grateful for it because I really made connections with people I, I still have today that I'm very grateful for that I might have missed out on otherwise. Yeah, yeah on that note, the point Brett made about friends and you know, as LePro and I have moved more in the last few years... You know, we've not lost connections with friends that we made in Ohio and the friends we made in Idaho. And you realize it, it takes a long time to make friends, like really, really good friends. You know, we have, a, like we have lots of acquaintances and, and we can call them friends in Arizona, but that we have, we, we do. But it, it's not the same of, of friends that you've known decades from shared experiences. And, and I think knowing we have good friends around the country makes it easier to say, all right, we want to try something else because one, we have a good relationship with our kids who are our friends, but we also have other friendships that we make sure we, we spend time you know, as we travel, connecting with them, having dinner, reaching out, because just recognizing how long it takes to actually build those friendships. And that, that takes decades. And so we want to make sure that we honor those friendships and keep them going. I think it's also been interesting to see how that's transitioned into my adult life. My spouse and I have also moved a lot. In the six years we've been married, we lived in six different states. 
and sometimes in different locations in those states. And we have both really enjoyed that. I think it's significant with what my father David said about friends, though, is that for the first time in our marriage, we have no plans on moving from where we live now. And one of the big things that's really affected that is our friends here, is that we got super lucky and immediately found friends and found a community that we just really love. Also, there is a lot less snow. And as an adult, I decided that I wanted to not live in the snow. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. The Pearl and I recently had dinner with some friends who run a retail business. They have multiple stores and an online shop. And they recently used Shopify to better manage their inventory so they could ship online orders out of all of their stores instead of the warehouse. It helped them get a higher conversion rate on their website because of Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launcher online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers, just like it did for our friends. With the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com david, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com david now to grow your business, no matter what state you're in. Shopify.com slash David. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash David. Netsuite.com slash David. All right, should we move on to uh, our next question? So our next question is, assuming you own your own home, should the equity value of your primary residence be factored in as part of your retirement planning? For example, if you have $1 million in a 401k, IRA, and other liquid assets, and $1 million in equity in your home, is it smart to use $2 million in assets as the basis for retirement purposes? Or should you leave the home equity value out of planning questions? It depends on whether you, you plan on downsizing or not. We, we recently actually covered this in plus episode 456, where 
a member was trying to figure out how to go about that because in their case, they they did plan on liquidating a, a vacation home at some point and downsiding their primary residence. And so for they were using the retirement spending spreadsheet that we have on the site and in the way that they did it is you just assume. So I think in their case, year 10 of retirement, they were going to get a lump sum and add it to their nest egg balance. And then they, a few years later, another lump sum. And what that allowed them to do was to have a higher spending rate. And so instead of starting with a 4% spending rate, they could start with a 6% spending rate because they knew they were going to get this lump sum from their house. In our case, in terms of you know my retirement planning, I exclude the value of our primary residence. We you know, include uh, the value of our cabin in like our net worth statement that we or portfolio allocation that we share percentages that we share on plus membership. But the reality is, I think from a spending standpoint, at this point, we're excluding both our primary residence and that cabin because we have no plans to sell it. And for now, and, and so we just don't include it. What was the last thing you read that changed your understanding of the world? For me, it's the book, How the World Really Works by Vaclav Smil, combined with uh, the book, The Day the World Stopped Shopping by J.B. McKinnon. I've discussed both of them on the podcast. Those two books helped me realize the lock-in effect of our economic system, how it's evolved over decades in terms of economic growth, the the resources needed, cement, oil, all the carbon-inducing things that we use, and just seeing how even the economy is so consumer-dependent and how much overconsumption uh, the West does relative to in many developing countries. And, and it was sort of, in some ways, discouraging to realize climate change is here, it's increasing, but I don't see anything changing majorly. I think it, it's because we we tend to muddle along as humans. In fact, I'm reading a, another book that a, a member recommended, Earth for All, Survival Guide for Humanity, which talks about two approaches, the muddle along approach versus making huge major changes. And even as I read that, it's like, all right, we're probably going to muddle along and, you know, technology will help, et cetera. But I don't see a consensus globally for making major changes. And And I also worry about the potential unintended consequences of that. So my worldview changed in terms of recognizing the power of lock-in effect and why things are the way they are. At the same time, I've made personal changes in the areas that I can actually have control over and changing in terms of consumption patterns of that sort. Well, I also read uh, The Day the World Stopped Shopping this year, so that was also very good. But my most recent one is is a little bit different. It was a memoir by William Finnegan called Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life. And I know that that might be kind of an interesting kind of book to say that it changed my understanding of the world. But his input and description of surfing, I, I just had never really spent a lot of time thinking about surfing. You know, I've seen videos of it. I watched a bit of it during the Tokyo Olympics when surfing was there for the first time. But reading this memoir and just kind of his experiences about surfing, his experiences throughout his life, really just changed uh, my view on it and really grew my respect of it. And I've actually spent a lot more time thinking about it than I thought I would and have found a lot of interesting kind of analogies with other areas of my life. But I think what I found most interesting was the amount of time he spends talking about just how long 
it takes to learn to read a surf spot, to learn to read a, a particular wave break, that people will spend lifetimes getting to know the unique rhythms of the surf spot that they grew up next to, of their favorite ones that they love to visit, that because it's something that's always changing but does have some consistent patterns, that there's just so much that they're looking for and, and doing by feel and all of these senses. And I found that just to be really fascinating. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And so while it's a relatively small part of the world and a part of the world that I have never directly experienced, I've never gone surfing, I have actually spent a lot more time thinking about that book and the way that they approached the ocean and surfing than I thought I would have for something that I just happened to see on an employee picks shelf at my local bookstore. Thanks, Camden. That's really neat. I might have to read that one. I think the most recent thing that I read that changed my understanding of the world was the Tao Te Ching. And I've read other another translation of the Tao Te Ching before, but I read the translation this year uh, that was done by Mark S. Molinex. We'll link to that in the show notes. And I just related to this uh, translation a lot more. First off, it had been translated in 2021 versus I think the previous one I had read was like the 1800s. But I also really enjoyed it because it had Mark's commentary on it. But in addition, it included a lot of quotes that taught similar principles that were being taught in each each section of the Tao Te Ching. And, and so it includes quotes from other Taoist texts it includes other religious scripture sections, uh, as well as just like even rock and roll quotes. It quotes like Pink Floyd. And, and that really helped make it very relevant to me. And I, I think it really changed my understanding of the world because obviously being raised in the United States, I come from the world perspective in a very Western way. And I think we so often forget that there are other ways of thinking. And I, I studied religion and anthropology in college. And this was one of my, my favorite things to learn about was just different ways of thinking and different worldviews and, and realizing, like thinking in ways that I had, I had never thought of even thinking about and how much that can really change one's perspectives. And so I, I love reading through the Tao Te Ching and learning to look at the world with a much less dualistic way and, and looking at the significance of emptiness and how that plays a role in life, as well as just really trying to, and, and David's done episodes on this, really trying to embrace Wu Wei, that, that effortless effort of, um, I think the way it's put in the book was, you know, striving without any attachment for the end result one way or another, or trying to be an empty boat. And, and really, that's really had a, a great impact on me and how I view the world. And it's something I'm still very actively trying to cultivate, though not too actively, because that would be against what the whole point is. That's great. That leads into our, our final question, which uh, I'll go ahead and read this one because I want to comment a little bit on, on what Brett just said. Final question is, tell us what this year has been like for your business and family. And we very much take a Taoist approach to our business. So we don't have these major goals each year. We just sort of want to improve what we do. And we tend to work in, we'll call them shorter term sprints, but I'm not sure sprinting would be how we would describe our approach to business other than just kind of focused area with you know, certain projects we want to work on over the next two or three months. You know, the overall business perspective, it's it's a challenging year. If you know any podcasters, it's been a tough year for podcasts, which is interesting because podcasts itself, the industry's grown. But if we look at, for example, downloads per episode, uh, they're down, your typical podcast is probably down 20%. Ad rates are down 
15 to 20 percent over the past year. And we're seeing that in money for the rest of us. The number of downloads that we're getting is less. Now, part of it's that how Apple and others count downloads has changed, but it's led us sort of deal with how do we, you know, as a business, we've basically been flat this year from a revenue standpoint and earnings standpoint. And which is fine because we just want to make sure we stay in business and keep enjoying it. And so that it's been an absolute pleasure to work with Camden and Brett and our daughter on money for the rest of us. And it, it's something that I really enjoy. And Camden, I'll talk a little bit about some of the projects that we're working on now. But generally speaking, we're focused on the outcome in a very Taoist way where other than produce quality products, be helpful to our listeners and our members and, and provide them the tools to, to help them become more confident in their investment decisions. That sums it up pretty well. It's been a, an interesting year for that. We have had some big things that happen, though. I know many of you have heard about Asset Camp. That was definitely the biggest thing that we did this year. We've been real focused on making sure that Money for the Rest of Us and Money for the Rest of Us Plus are running well, that we're finding the areas to improve, that we're talking with our members, our listeners. But Asset Camp definitely represents kind of one of the biggest steps that we've taken in recent years, just building something from scratch and releasing something completely new. And that was a really big adventure for us. A lot of interesting conversations. We've been very grateful to our team over at Baseblocks, a development team out of Ukraine that we've worked closely with. And it's been exciting to have people start using that. been exciting to get their feedback and to be thinking about how we can continue to improve it and get it out there. And so that's been a really, Asset Camp sits in a different space a little bit than money for the rest of us. It's less a membership community. It's more a I guess you could say a software as a service, fintech. And it's just really kind of changed the way that we think about and approach certain things. But it fits into our ecosystem well. And that's probably been outside of the the changing podcast landscape. That's definitely been the biggest development business-wise and one of our most exciting areas as we continue to strive for growth without being attached to the outcome, as seems to be our, our theme talking through that. So that's been a really good experience for building both our ability to work as a team, but also continuing to find ways to help our listeners and the people and the money for the rest of us community be empowered in their investing. I know I've learned a lot from it. Well, and, and then when you think about it, the output from Asset Camp we use all the time. I mean, we're using it in the investment newsletter. Or we're using it on in our Plus community in terms of our, our monthly reports. And it's the need of the broader community that, that is very much developing or driving what we're doing with Asset Camp in terms of additional enhancements to add fixed income next uh, next year to you know add some technical measures cyclically adjusted PE ratios and it's summary tables it's it's driven by the broader community just not not just the asset camp subscribers which we think is a good thing because that's how we know it will be an effective tool. So we, we definitely appreciate everybody's feedback if you're a listener, a member, a subscriber, Whatever. Thank you for this this year for listening to the podcast, sharing it with with others. We weren't able to get to every question, but uh, we read every question, and we'll more than likely use some of those in in in, in future episodes over the next year, like we we typically do. And so, thank you for that. This is our last episode for 2023. We typically take a couple weeks off at the end of the year. So we'll be back with our first episodes of the year, the first week of January. And so happy new year, everyone. 
you may be missing some of the best Money for the Rest of Us content. Our weekly Insider's Guide email newsletter goes beyond what we cover in our podcast episodes and helps elevate your investment journey with information that works best in written and visual formats. With the Insider's Guide, you can discover actionable investing insights provided only to our newsletter subscribers. Unlock greater investing confidence with high-value snippets from our premium products, plus membership and asset camp. Access exclusive news, offers, and events you won't hear about anywhere else. Further connect with the Money for the Rest of Us team and community. And when you sign up, we'll also send you our exclusive investing checklist to help you invest with more confidence right away. The Insider's Guide is the best next step to get the most out of your investment journey. If you're not on the list, go to moneyfortherestofus.com and subscribe with the Become a Better Investor sign-up box. Everything we've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. We've not considered your specific risk situation. We've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.